This is the Persistence of Christian Memory podcast episode number 28 with Vince Darty and Bruce Darty. Good evening, Dad. How are you doing? Good evening, Vince. I'm doing much better. It's a good thing that Christian memory is persistent because we've been away from our program for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's, we've had a lot of interruptions and delays and uh, some of our own slackness, maybe, but uh, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, it's been a combination of a lot of things. Both of our families have suffered illness, uh, specifically dealing with COVID. And we have had some untimely deaths in our church families and also in our personal family. And as a result, there have been some travels to attend funerals and also lectures out of state. And we both have very busy daily responsibilities in local ministry. And I know as a daddy of two very active boys, your schedule has kept very busy. Yes, um, but I'm really glad to be back and to be doing this podcast. Um, from the beginning, I, I know when I came to you talking about there's a wealth of information that is out there and that is in you and that I want to make sure uh uh, we get it to people. And uh, I think this is a vital thing for, for us to have these conversations uh, and gleaning lessons from church history. Um, last time we spoke, Dad, we uh, actually left it on a part one of, of, of a two-part series talking about how we got the Bible. Um, let's get back into it, Dad. All right. Uh, yes, our, our last podcast, uh, which was a few months ago, did focus on the question, how did we get the Bible? I believe this is a very fascinating study, and it uh, has a long development that takes one through many centuries, really, of church history. And so it kind of uh, spans uh, the whole, uh, really, 2,000 years uh, of the Christian message. Uh, it's a vast and complex study that sometimes requ requires dealing with uh, some technical issues, but we do not need to allow technical details to get in the way of uh, gaining an understanding on how the Bible has come to man. And that's what our, our podcast is about. Yeah, and we need to remember that the Bible is not hand, handed down directly from God to, uh, to earth, but it's a process. This uh, process can be compared to a chain um, that extends from God, uh, and there's some steps on the way to humanity, but involves inspiration, uh, canonicity, which we'll talk about later, and then transmission of the text. But the overriding prop, uh, process is God's providence. Uh, you think about 1 Peter 1, verses 24 and 25. You know, man is like the grass. It's going to fade like the flower. It's going to fail. Uh, but God's word endures. Same as Mark 13, and verse 31 uh, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall, they, they'll never pass away. And so the podcast today focuses on that process that gives us assurance of the reliability of the text of the Bible. Yes, and of course, this all began with the writing of the original books of the Bible as inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Again, Peter said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or private production, 
But prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And it's that moving of the Spirit to these men uh, that we're looking at. Yeah, I, I know I heard it first from you, and I don't think it's original with you. But um, you're talking about like a sailboat and the Holy Spirit being that sailboat moving uh, those riders to write. And it's such a great thing to think about of how the personalities of the writers and um, their way of writing was not hindered in any way or overridden in any way, but God moved in such a way that this was still writing of Scripture. But that brings us to that vital link of the transmission of the Bible. It takes into account the ancient process of writing until the invention of the printing and printing press, as many of you know about Gutenberg. It takes into account the numerous ancient manuscripts, translations, citations in church readings and church fathers when they, they make an evaluation of the manuscript evidence to compile the text. Yes, and just to gain an understanding of this process, uh, we ought to do a brief review of what it was like to write in the ancient uh, Mediterranean world. Papyrus material uh, for making writing paper was abundant uh, in uh, the various countries of the Mediterranean world. Um, uh, modern, think of modern day Turkey, think of uh, the, uh, the land of Israel, think of Egypt, but also uh, across North Africa and really across uh, Greece and Italy and probably even into Spain, uh, the papyrus plant flourished. And uh, you could make papyri, or that's where we get our paper idea uh, for writing materials. But this material was very fragile. In fact, the fragility of the papyri probably contributed to the loss of the original writings of the inspired uh, first authors. But because of the recognition of the authority in these writings and you know the making of the canon, Early Christians made many, many copies of the originals. Uh, soon after this time, uh, vellum or parchment of animal skins uh, replaced papyri. Vellum was more durable and could be written on both sides of the, of, uh, the pages. And soon the very typical scroll of the ancient world uh, was replaced by a book form known uh, as the Codex. And the Codex had a number of advantages over the scroll. It allowed several books to be bound together, uh, as we've found in, in various copies, all four Gospels collected together, or all the uh, letters of Paul collected together. It was an economical process since both sides could be used, and it made looking up passages easier than what had been on scrolls. Yeah, you've mentioned twice now um, the term canon. Just remind us what canon means. Yeah, canon uh, takes its name from the, the cane or the measuring stick uh, in the ancient world, but applied to the writings of the Bible. It, uh, it speaks to this collection of the books that were judged to be uh, from God and judged to be authoritative. Um, canon is simply man's recognition of the books that bear the marks of inspiration 
and thus are accorded divine authority. It's not authority was given to them by mankind, but it was a recognition these were authoritative in and of themselves, and Canon recognized that and said, these books, no others. Gotcha. All right. So coming back to this um, process of writing and, and keeping these um, copies, what then is the manuscript evidence that we have for the reliability of the New Testament? Well, in all, there are more than 5,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts of the New Testament that are known. This evidence alone makes the Bible the best attested book from the ancient world. If you would compare it, for example, to Caesar's Wars, or uh, if you would compare it to uh, some other first century writings, uh, we know of these things uh, because there might be eight copies of these uh, from the ancient times. Whereas the Bible has uh, manuscripts uh, first uh, in the in the papyrus fragments and then in the uh, vellum codexes that date uh, from the uh, early second century uh, up to the 15th century to the invention really of the printing press as you mentioned and so in addition with these uh, copies and fragments we also know that uh, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in the uh, 1940s that occurred in the desert of Egypt. And there, uh, the dry desert climate had preserved these very fragile materials. And so some of the oldest copies of the Gospels and the letters of Paul are now housed in library collections like in Dublin, Ireland and Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, for example. And uh, these manuscripts furnish us with uh, the background for the, the text of the New Testament. In addition to this, there are also what we would call very important secondary sources. And these are what we call the lectionaries and the old translations. Lectionaries were selected portions of the larger text, which were produced for public reading in worship. Uh, there might be a specific passage uh, that would be read on a, a given Sunday in, uh, in the church, and this passage would be copied, and then you would read that uh, in a public way, and then they would collect all these and, and preserve them. And so these lectionaries, uh, again, give witness to the text. Uh, there are more than 2,200 lectionaries uh, containing portions uh, of the New Testament. And then the old translations or the early translations of the scripture also give a very valuable testimony. You know, the Christians were engaged, seriously engaged in proclaiming the gospel to all nations. And as a result, translations to share the gospel in the language of uh, these ancient peoples were necessary. In the Greek speaking East, the old Syriac was an important translation. In the western half of the Roman Empire, Old Latin was the most important version before Jerome's Vulgate. But numerous other languages uh, on the fringes of the Roman Empire also were used, uh, utilized. Uh, there are Armenian translations, Coptic uh, translations for Egypt, uh, Georgian translations, Gothic translations. 
These are all early, uh, early translations that uh, give a, an important testimony to the text. In addition, another source that we should not overlook are the writings of uh, those men that we call the ancient church fathers. Now, they don't quote book, chapter, and verse like us because uh, division into chapters and verses come much, much later. But their writings are filled with citations uh, of these passages. And when you compare this to other books from antiquity, no other book has the reliability of the Bible. And to me, that's a great testimony of the overall writing providence of God. It just seems like there's a mound of evidence. If this is true, then why do people continually doubt the writing of the Bible? Well, some of it uh, comes from ignorance. They just don't know. Uh, they have they parrot, you know, what they've heard uh, somebody say. And, and again, some of, some of it is prejudice uh, and bigotry because people are opposed to uh, the idea of God and God speaking. But uh, if you would accept the evidence, it's not a reason for doubting the Bible, but it does create a problem. The wealth of the manuscript evidence uh, creates a problem because no two manuscripts are alike. And so when uh, you compare one manuscript to another and there appears these variations, some people will ask, well, why are the variations? But most of these variations uh, were caused by copying the text. And you have to remember the text was copied by hand for centuries until the invention, uh, invention of the uh, printing press. If any one of our listeners has ever tried to copy any document by hand, especially a lengthy one, uh, then you can get in and get an idea of the unintended errors that can appear even when you're trying to do your level best. Yeah, that should be pretty well understood. Um, if there's no two manuscripts, though, that are the same, how can we be sure or confident that we have those original texts? Well, that's a very good question, and it is a question that uh, is answered, I think, by the rise of what we call the science of textual criticism. The presence of these copious var variations has uh, made scholars come up with some sound principles so that they might guide in the recovery of what we would call the original text. Um, the function of the textual the critic is plain. The scholar seeks by a comparison and study of all the available evidence to recover the exact words of the author's original composition. Uh, and, and as a result, Christians do not need to fear these manuscript variations. Thanks to the work of textual critics, most of the variations uh, have been accounted for as accidental uh, alterations that uh, do a very minimal uh, change in the nature of the text. Errors sometimes uh, arose from momentary inattention, and we all know how easy it is to get distracted uh, when we're doing things. Uh, diversion from the words to the subject matter, uh, dictation, reversal of lettering, change in pronunciation, uh, sometimes relying, relying on memory uh, when our memory is getting a little faulty. And the absence that uh, the ancient world had of space and punctuation 
are all examples of uh, accidental errors let, that creep in. And uh, when this is jammed together, uh, it makes for, uh, makes for uh, the variations that we have. And so the, the Christian can understand that the vast uh, majority of variants are of this very minute nature. Okay. okay. So there's these accidental scribal errors, right? Yes. Um, but there are some portions, um, not not a lot, but there are some portions in my New Testament that they may have brackets around them. Um, and these brackets saying, you know, these things may or may not have been there um, in the in, in the originals. How do you deal with the those bracketed text? All right. Yeah, these are more substantial things. And this is, again, where uh, there ha has to be made a choice uh, in understanding. And uh, I, I appreciate editions of the Bible that put these brackets or footnotes there so so that we are aware of the textual variation that occurs here. Uh, you might think, for example, in John 8, 1 through 11, the woman uh, caught in adultery. Or you might think of Acts 8, 37, uh, the eunuch's confession that's found uh, there in the Bible. These variations are much more substantial. And that is why these modern uh, modern versions uh, have these passages offset uh, from the rest of the text. Again, some of these variations arose from intentional actions of the copyists. Uh, they were trying to make a passage conform uh, maybe to uh, Christian practice <laughs> or conform to uh, something that they they wanted to, to accept. And uh, they had uh, perhaps, a, a, you know, this fragment in this manuscript. And so they decided to include it, whether it was uh, really from uh, in the text or not. And so these variation efforts to correct mistakes or more fully explain difficulty, difficult re readings or to support a peculiar doctrine, uh, these might have been the motives uh, of scribes who did this. But uh, I want you to note this comment uh, that J.W. McGarvey, who was an outstanding Bible scholar in the Restoration Movement, he, he wrote in his book on the, the inspiration of the Bible, he said, when we consider all the foregoing sources of corruption to which the sacred text was exposed for 1,400 years, the multitude of accidental mistakes to which a long line of copyists were exposed— the constant temptation of ambitious scholars to make what they might think improvements in style, and the almost irresistible inclination on the part of sectarians engaged in fierce con controversy to make the scriptures conform to their dogmas. He said, we have reason to be surprised, not that there are so many various readings, but that they are so few and of so little importance. And because of this great attention, the Christian can be sure of a "thus saith the Lord" rather than "thus copy describe." I know I've heard it this way, and I want to try to get this uh, across. The way I heard it was: well, imagine the game where you're playing telephone. And uh, you pass it along, and you pass it along. Well, over time, eventually, the playing telephone, it becomes where 
um, that message has been corrupted. And there's a lot of people who think that is how the Bible is. And what I have today, I can't trust. Well, imagine along the way you have these guys who are playing telephone and they intentionally or otherwise make a mistake. Uh, they say something different than what the uh, previous manuscript or copy or original said. Um, to keep that in check, you have that mountain of uh, manuscript evidence to compare it to. So if there is mistakes, all right, compare it to the rest. The rest have them all right. We get it back on track and it goes forward and you don't have those significant uh, mistakes that are made. And so um, it, it is this line of translations to the current Bible that's sitting on my desk, but I can have confidence that it is passed uh, genuinely, faithfully, all the way down on those ways. Um, and obviously the providence of God uh, working in those things all along. Right. And, and uh, again, uh, these witnesses that we have are many, uh, way more than any other ancient book. And many of these witnesses are very, very old as far as we're concerned, but close in time to the original uh, text of, of the New Testament. Uh, and again, some of our papyrus fragments uh, are now dated even into the uh, second century. And so that brings us very close to the time of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, and thus it helps reassure us uh, that uh, we have uh, this uh, this manuscript that uh, reflects with accuracy what God wanted us to know. And these things are within the time period of these people being alive. The 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 importance of the apostles being with Jesus from the beginning and seeing the resurrection. They were eyewitnesses. And these men were important people um, that were hand-selected for this task of getting that out there. And you see like the last book of uh, the New Testament, the book of Revelation, this is all being done in that first century where witnesses are now getting to the point of dying out, but we need to have a reliable word of what happened that we can know these things for, for the truth that they, they hold. Um, and just very, like you said, ignorant type of things that say, Oh, well, Constantine made the Bible or um, some Nicene council, those things, you know, can affirm what's already there, but they didn't write those things. And we don't need to um, let outsiders or people say, oh, these people who didn't have any vested interest in the Bible, they were not, um, that's not where that authority came from. That's right. And so again, uh, when we take up the, the text, uh, we can be very thankful that, uh, again, that uh, the inspiration was uh, the process by which God used so that we could have his word. Uh, we can be also very thankful that uh, the canon uh, recognized uh, the, this text and uh, has uh, been uh, preserved for us. And then again, we can be very thankful for all the evidence that uh, gives us reliability of that text. 
one objection someone might make in the modern day is there's so many different translations uh, of the Bibles, different Bible versions. You have the New King James, King James, ESV, ASV, and the list just goes on and on. Um, are some versions better than other uh, others? How do I differentiate between those versions? Well, that's a good question, and we need to remember throughout most of its history, the Bible has been read by more people in translations than its original uh, languages of the Hebrew and Greek. Um, and so uh, even from a very early time, translations have always been around, but translation is indeed a human process, and we have to remember that words change in meaning over the years. Um, for example, the English of 1611, uh, when the King James or the authorized version was given, uh, is very different from uh, the spoken English that we have here in this country uh, and which uh, others have. And so words change in meaning over the years. And as a result, there's always going to be a need for improving and updating our translations. Um, when, when you would compare translations, uh, to me, good translations are those which are, first of all, faithful to the original text. That is, they've got the, a good, uh, good solid foundation that they're based on the Greek text. But I, I think for them to be effective translations, they also need to be understandable to the modern reader. And uh, again, I have no uh, problem with the person who reads the King James Version and, and, and that's good enough for them. But uh, my own experience is that uh, we've changed a lot from the way the King James expresses many things. And so I tried to use a, uh, a more understandable uh, English uh, version but one that's still faithful to the original text. In general, works that are done by uh, committees who have oversight of the process of what they're doing and also are accountable to each other for uh, the, the passages and the way they're translated, I think these result in the best translations for us to use. And so, so again, uh, we do not need to think that just because uh, I'm reading from an English translation of uh, the Greek text that uh, this is inferior, but I'm just reading, uh, again, uh, the very natural way that this sounds in my own language. Now, I know some people can get very um, dogmatic on which version to use. And as newer translations come out, there's always this criticism of, you know, I mean, this has been corrupted. This has been changed. Um, there's dangers on, you know, I, I can't read this. It's not readable because it's in a language that's too archaic. But what's the what's the danger on the other end where we're massaging the text so much that we might lose something? Okay, uh, that's a good question. And uh, again, that's where, again, we, we need to make sure of what we're trying to do. Uh, we, if you've ever worked in a foreign language, uh, uh, like I've had to do on the mission field, uh, you understand that 
translation is a process of interpretation. And again, it's an imperfect process. Some people artistically, I think, are much more capable of this than others. But even when you get to a more of a, a maybe a mechanical style of translation, we still want to stay with the original and make a translation rather than a paraphrase, which tries to uh, make this foreign object or foreign uh, idea uh, uh, much more palatable to the language it's coming in. Uh, and, and we just need to understand there is no one perfect translation. And uh, again, if it is faithful to the original text and it is understandable to the modern ear, uh, then I think we've got the balance there that uh, helps in this process. And uh, again, uh, I hope, uh, I, I know there are those who have their favorite versions and uh, those kind of things. But uh, if, as long as you understand the process and understand this, uh, then, you know, you, you can know the Bible through, uh, through these uh, old translations. But I think you'll you'll have a, a better understanding, uh, maybe by dealing with a, a newer uh, translation. Well, I know I find myself in the process of teaching Bible classes or uh, preaching. A lot of times, I'll have a, a interlinear um, opening, and the modern technology that we have, where you can have those things on your computer, either by hardware or software um, and the internet things, you can find those interlinear um, where you go right back to the Greek. And, um, you know, there's word for word translations. There's thought for thought translations. Um, and how they balance that is, uh, like you said, it's a hard process. And uh, like you said, whenever you're translating from one language to another, now you're trying to translate from um, ancient Greek uh, to, and, and the, the really neat thing about, you know, Koine Greek is it's set, you know, it's, it was set in that time period. And I don't have to worry about the translation of those words and the definitions of those words. But the thing is, the modern English keeps updating. And so uh, that's where that process has to keep working. Uh, it's going to be an on, ongoing process of as far as um, humanity's part. And so we receive the Bible in these two parts. We have the part that is God-given inspiration, and then it is received by humanity. Inspiration is that word that describes how God gave us scriptures, but then the canon and the transmission uh, of those words uh, describe how we have received them. Uh, but then the Christian, he trusts that God's providence has overseen that process of the receiving and the translating uh, of those things. Um, and with those two things of God's part, man's part, we should have a strong assurance that what was true in the first century for those first Christians is true for us in the modern, modern world as well. Second Timothy three verse 15 says, and from a child, you have known the Holy scriptures and that they are 
they are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in which is Jesus Christ. Right, and uh, uh, again, when you think of translations, uh, uh, even that Old Testament text was translated in, a set, in the Septuagint, which was the Bible of the ancient church. And uh, especially when they went uh, throughout the Mediterranean world with that gospel message. And so a Bible that uh, you can understand, that your listeners can understand, uh, that's what a, that's one of the great, great gifts that God has given to mankind. So you have the the um, the Septuagint, and then the, you have the what is it called the Mass Masoretic? Yeah, the Masoretic is the text, the Hebrew text as we know it um, from about twelve hundred. Now, is it is Jesus? Because I know Atnip talks about this. Um, like Jesus is familiar with. When, when is the Septuagint? It is written probably a century before Christ. Okay. So when Jesus is doing, you know, quoting of Old Testament scripture, is he quoting from the Septuagint or is he quoting from the Masoretic? Because I want to say that Atnip brought this up, but I cannot remember for the life of me what he talked about with it. Yeah. Um, most of the citations of the Old Testament in the New Testament are uh, more conforming to the Septuagint. Now, I don't know Jesus specifically, uh, but most of the citations uh, are more from the Septuagint. But sometimes they're just kind of a free translation, and sometimes they conform to what we know in the Masoretic text. So it's. Well, and the thing too is like. <laughs> how much how much of old testament was quoted in the new testament because how closely or loosely you know you can find you know yeah. the links back and forth yeah and and there are a lot of passages uh, in fact i've got a, a book in my office for for textual study in, in in the greek but it is uh old testament quotations in the new testament and it's every passage and it's trying to show you whether it's a free translation, a Masoretic text following, or the Septuagint, and they're trying to show you in all that. And uh, uh, and and it just shows you that there are some adaptations of Old Testament passages where they kind of even shift the words a little bit to make it um, more uh, of a New Testament meaning. And so it might have meant one thing quoted in Isaiah back then, but it could even mean have a secondary meaning when it's quoted for the New Testament uh, church. And I, I was reading some of this uh, in a new commentary I just got on Acts 
this week. Also, when you think about, think of all those citations in the book of Hebrews. Oh, yeah. Hebrews and Acts and got a ton. Yeah. And in the book of Hebrews, over and over again, there, there's this phrase, the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit is indicating by this. And like he uses, you know, that uh, Joshua giving the people the day, the rest, entering the promised land. But he, <laughs> but he quotes then that passage from David, uh, a rest still remains. And it is to show that though Joshua did give the people that promised land there, that wasn't, that didn't include everything that God had in mind about the rest. And right. so, so we have even here where the old, uh, old uh, the Old Testament passage is being reworked by the Holy Spirit to help this Christian uh, part of God's plan. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a really cool passage talking about the rest there remains. Yeah, there's yeah. so many good. Things. There's so much good stuff in the Hebrews. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, it's been. Long time. Yeah. I, I yeah. remember um, uh, Atnib talking one time about Hebrews, and there's some people who will, you know, we're we're New Testament, you know, Christians. We, you know, and they'll start dogging on the Old Testament, saying, hey, "You preacher, stop preaching in the Old Testament." And he said, "The number one place I would go to start preaching is Hebrews." And whenever we'd come to an Old Testament, I would just skip over and keep reading and tell people they got to go figure it out for themselves. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, and it's one of those things, too, I'm really confident that if a person read the book of Hebrews two or three times, that by the fourth time, you would start seeing a real big connection here between the old and new, that God's plan begun is continuing on in, in what, is, what the writer is doing. I'm not doing it my next sermon, but I'm I'm getting some stuff ready for. I'm doing all Israel will be saved. Uh, I want to do a lesson on um, uh, Romans is eleven twenty six. I think that's what it is. Um, yeah, Romans eleven twenty six. That's it. But um, a lot of good stuff in Romans on, but it, but it's still talking about some of the same stuff you're you're talking about. God's continuation. That's the seed of Abraham, and you know if. Um, if you understand it's it's all coming through the seed of Abraham, the faith of Israel and the faith of the Gentiles is all the same faith. Uh, and so all Israel, all of the faithful will be saved. Um, That's true. It, but it's not ethnic. It's spiritual Israel. 